to episode 69 of FRT, the IF podcast on the intersection of finance, regulation and technology. I'm Brad Carr and I'm joined today by guests from our partners at ISDA, the International Swaps and Derivatives Association. Tara Cruz is the Global Head of Infrastructure, Data and Non-Cleared Margin and previously led derivatives documentation at Morgan Stanley and she's joining us from New York and her colleague Ian Sloyan is the Director, Market Infrastructure and Technology and Ian brings an extensive prior history in derivatives and structured capital operations at RBS, UBS and Barclays, joining us from London. Ian and Tara, welcome to FRT and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Brad. I want to start with the current circumstances. We'll talk a little bit later about how we're all adapting with the realities of the COVID crisis and some of ISDA's responses. But closer to home and perhaps on a more personal level, I think the last time that I met the two of you was in Washington when you were visiting in, I think it was early March, shortly before we all went into the various different forms of lockdown that we've had. But how are you finding things today and and what does it look like for you on the ground, Tara in New York and Ian in London? Yeah, I mean, it's really been an adjustment for us as it has for everyone, but we're grateful that we've been able to continue the work that IS has been doing and that our colleagues are safe and well. Similarly, my team in London running the CDM project, we have a lot of developers in different places often, so that's been a a slight change, but um, we've all adjusted quite well and I've been surprised how well we've proceeded. That's really been one of the big themes that I think we've we've heard a lot of and we've seen a number of, of prominent CEOs and chairmen, Mike Corbett at Citibank, Jose Vinales at Standard Chartered have each talked about how they've been pleasantly surprised just how well that transition's been managed. But I thought also Charlotte Hogg, the Europe CEO of Visa, made a really interesting point on our Europe conference recently that we've gone from this scenario where nobody was working at home to where now everybody is working at home. And I guess we're going to, at some stage, go to a new form of adaptation where some are and some aren't. So we're only part of the way there in the journey, I, I guess. Indeed, it seems like we'll have a hybrid model in the future. We're going to focus most of our discussion today on ISDA's new common domain model, but could I firstly get you to give the quick snapshot of ISDA as a whole? I first became familiar with ISDA when managing a credit risk portfolio, what seems many years ago, and I'd been well-schooled at the time about the need to ensure that all transactions were made with counterparties where my bank had an ISDA agreement in place with that counterparty. But I know there's a lot more to ISDA, uh, so I was wondering, perhaps Tara, if you could give us the quick synopsis. Yeah, I think most market participants know us for the ISDA Master Agreement, which is really a foundational document. Um, but we are a global derivatives trade association. We were established in 1985. Today, ISDA has over 900 members from 73 countries. The members comprise a broad range of the derivatives market participants from banks and asset managers to corporations and government and supranational entities. Our mission is to work to make derivatives markets safer and more efficient. So our foundational documentation is certainly an aspect of that, but really the scope of the work that IS has been doing has broadened over the last few years, especially since the financial crisis, and now continues to evolve to the discussion that we're going to have today. And indeed, I have to say on behalf of the IAF that we very much appreciate the collaborations that we've enjoyed with ISDA. On a personal level, I worked with a number of your colleagues on the, the first iterations of the cumulative capital impact studies that we've done together, and it's certainly been a, an important and fruitful relationship that we've enjoyed. But to the topic today, and we want to talk specifically on the common domain model, and uh, perhaps, Ian, if I could start with you, could you give us the introduction of what is the ISDA Common Domain Model Project? Thanks, Brad. Yes. I usually do this with a picture in mind, so hopefully I can draw that picture for people. If we think of the typical landscape we're faced in derivatives markets or financial markets generally, lots of data, different formats, all originating from the same transactions, which are not often consistently captured in different parties' systems. Processes then 
which take place across the life cycle of those trades, is not always implemented consistently either. And then we have regulatory and legal frameworks that need to be applied to these transactions and to this activity and the processes, which again are not always tightly adhered to as we'd expect or, or we would desire. Come the main model project, which I run at ISTA, is aiming to harmonize this picture and improve compliance with legal and regulatory intentions by uh, allowing people to do things in the same way is probably what the core message is. I guess to elaborate on that a little further, yeah, in terms of, of what this will actually do in practice and how it does that, can you give us a little more color? So the clue is in the name, the common domain model. So it's a model for products, for financial products, data model for financial products, for the calculations which typically happen uh, the same for each party, and then the processes and events that happen to a trade during its life cycle. So what is the set of data I need to describe that transaction? What are the calculations that happen? You know, how do I calculate interest or day count fractions? And then when I come to do something to it, when I reset a trade or when I want to increase the notional or decrease the notional, I do that consistently. So the model that's presented as, as data and functions as code, which is machine executable, that code includes contract mechanics that I've mentioned, functions which specify some some aspects and clauses found in the is the legal documentation, such as our product definitions. Most importantly, it's available in different computer languages for consumers of the model to easily and consistently implement components of it when they go to build systems. We're making this library, the CDM, available to the market for people to build systems with. You've described there, Ian, firstly, the compelling need to have standardization and, and commonality. And then you've, you've made the point there about having something that's open and accessible and that others are able to, to freely code and plug into. Reminds me a lot of an issue we see frequently in other areas across the, the digitization of the economy where there is a need to have some form of standardization, some form of commonality that others are able to participate and get on board with. It's often cited, for instance, that one of the, the reasons why open banking has had such a slow take up in the UK that's been the pioneer has been the multitude of different application programming interfaces or APIs that are around. And you sometimes hear people say, do we need to have a standardised approach that's dictated by a government agency, for instance? And you'll have others that will say that the government should be technology neutral, in which case, really, you need the industry to step up and to provide the leadership around the standardisation. It strikes me that that's really what you're trying to do here. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'd 100% agree that you need to do the standards first before you try and solve the technical problem. Where those come from, up for debate, um, it would be very nice and it always helps if there's a regulatory imperative and that support from regulators and, and governmental institutions. But we are we are building the CDM with that in mind that's intended to be open and, and available to the market for people to, to, um, to engage with if they are regulators, whether they be as the members or not. And we've had a lot of feedback from, you know, the likes of, of the Bank of England as well, where they're very supportive of the work we're doing. So I wanted to ask you a bit about the benefits, and we've probably started to allude to this already, uh, and in terms of the, the taking that role of leadership in providing standards that are accessible and, and open to others. But could I ask you to build on that, perhaps, and talk us through some of the broader benefits you see from this initiative? Yes, um, I always sort of pitch this as sort of three themes of, of benefits. So... Well, the first one, uh, which is perhaps obvious, but sort of lay it out, is that having one data model for, for transactions and their life cycle has a great potential for, for straight through processing, portability of services, which we know is very important, um, so that people can, can move, um, their, their, the, 
move to to meet services from from different suppliers and 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 um and, and get the best value for money. Um, process efficiency uh, always uh, enhanced by having the same um, data models. People understand what they're talking about. Um, and then most obvious um, uh, benefit would be to remove reconciliation. If if I know um, how my party, uh, my counterparty has has stored the information on their side, and I also know how they're going to adjust that process happens when an event happens during the life cycle. If we both agree that we're changing it in some way and we're doing it in the same way, we won't need to reconcile the data as much as we do today. And this also has a knock-on effect of removing and mitigating the chance of breaks, uh, costly as they are. And the, the you know settlement breaks is something that operations departments of financial institutions spend their, their days and trying to resolve. So that's the first benefit. The second benefit, I think, is around regulation. And the implementation of regulation is very costly and part of, of the business uh, for ISDA's members and beyond. Um, in recent years, there's been, uh, you know, the implementation of, of, of various regulations based off the back of the financial crisis. We believe through the CDM, regulations can actually be modeled uh, in, in the same place as the data uh, which represents the transactions, and we can provide the market with one consistent implementation of regulatory rules, such as, say, those for reporting. And those implementations of the rules, that basically logic to tell you how to deal with that, that regulation, uh, can be made openly available um, for, for regulators, for example, to, to work with the industry on and, and have test data and validation phases with the regulators involved, all happening kind of transparently as industry initiatives. Or when new rules are being considered, you know, the regulators and industry could work together and say, well, we think we need a rule like this. Well, we have a big data set and we have a kind of a, a reference implementation of how rules work and what the data looks like. So let's see what the, what that new rule might look like. And the, re- the regulator can then make a, a more informed decision about how they, they might like to draft that rule. And then finally, or the, the third um, benefit, we believe that, that Providing an open standard uh, in digital form, which is machine executable, we can really accelerate innovation. We can allow new technology providers to focus on their novel technologies and not worry about domain-specific issues. They don't need to understand how uh, the nuances of how the dates work on the reset of an interest rate swap. We should we should have all that you know available for them to just consume, and and we can give them libraries of components so when they build solutions for for our markets and that we know they're using robust good standards but also if more of them use it they get interoperability for free and all those new systems whether it be a DLT solution or uh, artificial intelligence analysis of of trading data that those things will be interoperable where they need to be because they're all using the same standards Um, so yeah we, we 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 sort of see things in those three three uh, phases of, of benefit and you know I think that um, I think that you know those are the, the the key areas we try and get the message across on oh I think very striking benefits and I think very compelling each and every one in their own domain there no pun intended I guess in terms of how you take this forward and actually implement I noticed that there was a great quote from your CEO Scott O'Malia about the fact that there's always reasons to keep the status quo and and that we need to look beyond that and that this really presents a once in in a generational opportunity to to get beyond that and to I think realize the kind of benefits that you've just been talking us through there therein 
One of the things we've found in some of the work we've done on digital transformation has been about the, the criticality of leadership and of leadership and having the champions of change to help drive the implementation and the uptake. How are you finding that this is received you know, broadly across the industry? And are you finding industry participants, member firms to be excited and receptive to this? And, and are there the champions of change that are helping to promote that? don't think I've ever met anyone who says this is a bad idea. They may think it's a it's a very difficult thing to to execute, but uh, no one says it's a bad idea. And I think we've been very encouraged by the the uptake, uh, particularly from software vendors who who you might think would like to sort of maintain the status quo of their quasi standard, maybe that they have in their system. But no, that they're, they're very open to to working with us and making use of the CDM so that they can say that their system is interoperable. Infrastructure providers, you know. Clearing houses, all very engaged in the CDM project and working with us in our um, design working group. And also the banks themselves who are, you know, is the board level firms, the biggest financial institutions in the world, all very engaged and kind of in a surprising way as well. A lot of them starting to think that uh, if, you know, the CDM is not just going to be interoperability layer between them, but actually they could consider using the CDM internally and natively in their systems when they come to do a new a big change or they're changing the architecture of one particular asset class and things like that so all very positive and and all very um uh you know all in the right right spirit and we see actually we've seen a wider uh, take up and a much broader take up uh, of interest uh, from other other areas outside is that outside the derivatives domain uh, and we're talking to a lot of other associations and our peers who look at different asset classes, look at different uh, parts of financial markets, who, who like what is is done, and we've kind of uh, blazed the trail, and, and, and they want to to, to to work with us and and, and follow our lead and, and work with us on on, on incorporating some of their uh, portions of the market and the things they need to to get right and harmonise into the CDM. You've hit on a couple of the really key themes we see across the digital economy. Uh, interoperability is a big one. And when we take this into a completely different field, we talk a lot there in terms of things like data privacy regimes around the world that where those are never going to be completely consistent. The criticality is that they have interoperability across borders. I think similarly, a lot of what you've just described and through those benefits uh, and through the, the open uh, platform, it's very similar to a lot of the work that the IF's doing in digital identity as well. So I can certainly align and, and commend the line of thinking I'd like to perhaps step back a little now and, and take what you've just described, Ian, specifically about the common domain model and put it in perhaps in the wider context of ISDA as a whole. And I think as we discussed at the outset, you know, when we think of ISDA, we often think of the legal definitions, the documentation, the master agreements, the things that you've really provided that form the framework for the derivatives, derivatives industry as a whole. Can you give us a bit more context perhaps of where you see the CDM fitting within ISDA's wider work program? Yes. So as we mentioned, ISDA is long been known for setting standards for the derivatives industry through the ISDA master agreement initially, through our product definitions, uh, through FPML, uh, other standards, uh, the, the SIM, um, we, we continue to do so. Um, but it has been become clear to ISDA uh, over the last um, couple of years that there's a, a growing necessity to, to take standardization to the next level. Um, we need to provide additional data standards, um, common digital representations, and, and we need to also um, facilitate mutualized solutions to industry problems, um, whether that be by providing you know, digital standards or, or, or working on them ourselves. The CDM is a key part of that um, 
you know, of a, of a, of a, of a wider scope of, of initiatives. It is the, um, that we're working to do already. Um, so uh, under the banner of standardization, we, we have the CDM, which works at kind of the implementation layer, the processes and how we define that data. We think it's important that we align with other data standards and we work in complement to, to other data standards uh, and ensure consistency and efficiency across the market. So that's a key principle in the CDM and other initiatives at ISDA. But first off, if we think of this as a, I'm afraid there's a bit of an echo. Is there? Um, I put myself on mute about a minute ago and then just took myself off mute for the reason that my five-year-old son just came in and delivered a freshly baked muffin to me. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure it's worth it for the muffin. Uh, <laughs> Ian, do you want to just go back slightly? Okay. So um, the first step uh, really needs to be the standardization uh, step. And that is that we're, we're attempting to simplify and standardize our legal documentation uh, including uh, developing standard form drafting options for use in, in contract no- negotiation um, through uh, a, a platform called ISDA Create. Um, but also importantly, uh, we have a project called the ISDA Clause Library project, which where we've we've analysed bespoke language from uh, a, a, a library of, of ISDA master agreements, proposed standard clauses uh, which will perform the same business outcome, uh, which can be used in in new documents or for mapping from legacy documents to bring more more technology to bear. So effectively, we found that people are, are negotiating bespoke versions of documents. Often the language is, is doing the same thing, but it's slightly different. And we've done that analysis and we have a, a, a clause library, which we're going to make available to the market for people to hopefully negotiate in more standard ways and also be able to analyze the, the legacy documentation uh, using artificial intelligence and all, all um, uh, new technologies to do uh, analysis that was not available before. So, yes, that standardization step of the legal documentation is crucial before we move on to digitization. Perhaps, Tara, you could explain some of the initiatives that is the, in the digitization space. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Ian. So the objective of our digitization program is to deliver commonly used industry standard documentation in digital formats. For starters, is this going to provide a digital version of the 2020 interest rate definitions alongside the traditional PDF format? At the same time, we expect to roll out a digital version of the ISDA master agreement. Then we're going to look to digitize existing product definitions, beginning with the FX definitions and supplements. Our goal overall here is to develop robust legal agreement data models to connect contractual terms with the supporting processes and data. And we also aim to establish greater legal and regulatory certainty for market participants on the use of electronic contracts and signatures, a topic which has been brought to the forefront by the shift to remote working. Also important is the distribution of these standards. The new standards will be distributed to market participants through modern interfaces like web pages and APIs and essentially allow for the searching, cross-referencing, and analysis. We're also establishing to support this robust and inclusive governance frameworks around the development, operation, and maintenance of these mutualized technology standards. And we intend to offer these new standards on an industry-wide, commercially reasonable basis to support the development and implementation of interoperable and efficient solutions, as we've all recognized today, is so important. Ian, maybe you want to speak specifically about the distribution approach for CDM. Indeed, the CDM project is operating very much in line with 
open source um, software principles, um, and we, we always have those in mind. So we produce the CDM in different software languages uh, to allow different consumers to use it natively when they're they're building solutions and building systems. Um, you know, in, in digitizing our, our documentation, we're also considering how to deliver that this content in different forms too. So not just in the CDM and and as FPML as we must, but not also uh, as as PDF or even the web interface as people might expect. But uh, we're we're considering how there's different markup languages, different legal markup languages that might be useful to market participants, and we have to think about uh, how we we can deliver to those too. So I think you've got some really great initiatives and some great potential with this. And I do want to just pick up a little, the point I alluded to earlier when I referenced Scott O'Malley's quote, that there's always some that are difficult to move from the status quo. You know, I think you've got a fantastic initiative, but the great challenge is always how you actually bring that to reality and how you overcome some of those obstacles. So I'm just interested in thoughts you see in terms of the implementation journey for this program and how you envisage or expect to overcome those obstacles. For sure. So first of all, I believe the the obstacles are not necessarily technical ones. As we've explained, ISDA is open to developing our standards in different formats to suit the needs of, of users and technology firms, um, to work with, with um, market participants, with other stakeholders, with other associations, with regulators and central banks, um, and other standard-setting organizations. Um, we have the tools, and, and I think um, through a lot of the work we've done, we've shown um, these new approaches are, are feasible. Um, I think the biggest obstacle, as, we've, as, as you've alluded to and, and, and Scott mentioned in um, his, his article, um, is people not wanting to change and people being happy with the status quo. Um, so whatever their motive is, um, they, that is their, their stance. So um, our, our job and, and my job, read the, the, the CDM, is to get the message across to that broad set of stakeholders um, you know, and, and, and that's the, the, the hardest obstacle I think we have to get over. So we try to do that by giving people an idea of the potential applications and improvements we could see if we take this opportunity. Um, you know, we do a lot of demonstrations. We pick different applications, different use cases for the CDM, show it working and then try and get people enthused. And, and they then come on board to try and solve that problem using the CDM. And, and hopefully next thing we know, they're kind of champions for it. And that's that's the, the sort of the carrot approach where we try and uh, explain the benefits and hopefully get them involved in some small way in the delivery of, of the, the project or any of these initiatives. Um, however, we also believe that this is a, a critical juncture uh, where the costs of, of these businesses are, are high and digitization of this business is, is an imperative. Um, so perhaps maybe that's the stick. Uh, people have to move, uh, we believe, because um, you know, uh, otherwise, the, if you stand still, um, you never know what might happen. Very true. And I think in the world that we live in today, we need to not think about stability in the old-fashioned way of standing still. Stability nowadays is more like riding a bike, uh, a dynamic view of stability. And I think you allude to that. And I, I share your view that it's it's not the technology challenges or technology obstacles. And indeed, when we look across uh, digital transformation within retail banking and within insurers more broadly, it's the same, uh, it's a very common theme that it's the cultural challenges and, as you put it there, Ian, uh, the ability to come up with some, some quick wins, some demonstrable successes to hopefully help get others on board. To conclude, and Tara, I might turn to you, uh, can we talk a bit about recent events and, and the COVID crisis? We touched on it at the outset from what it's meant for ourselves individually and what we see around us in our respective cities. 
how do you view that more broadly across ISDA and, and how does the COVID crisis perhaps shape or change what ISDA is doing? It's interesting, Brad, because the, the COVID-19 pandemic has, has highlighted, I think, the urgency of these efforts. As much as firms might be struggling with resource constraints, they're also realizing that the significant increase in market volatility experienced at the outset of the pandemic placed existing infrastructure under considerable strain, demonstrating the inherent inefficiency of bilateral systems and processes that are operating within a multilateral network. And more fundamentally, that the prospect of long-term remote working has challenged established consensus about how trading and operations should function with profound implications for operating models that rely on inefficient and expensive manual processing. So we really think that now is the time to digitize and set ourselves on a path to that digital future. We really look forward to and encourage broad engagement from the industry to help us uh, reach those objectives. It's a good point, and I think it, it kind of fits with a lot of what we're seeing across the broader financial sector, that in a lot of cases there are some great success stories where other technologies have performed and, and enabled the transition, but in some cases that there might be a critical dependency perhaps that's been exposed. We had uh, Jonathan Larson, the Chief Innovation Officer of Ping An, speak on a, a recent IAF webinar, and he made the point that what the COVID crisis has really done is it has exposed the occasional little gap in our technology structures and therefore triggered firms to work you know, very diligently at the moment at plugging those specific gaps. And I think there, Tara, when you pick up the point about those operations that might still rely on something that's bespoke or something that's in person, it is really the need and I guess the opportunity to be able to plug some of those gaps, isn't it? Yeah, I think firms will be motivated, you know, as they have resources available to try to figure out how to make their um, their infrastructure work in an alternative situation like this so that, you know, should we have another reason down the road to be able to rely on more automated systems that they are ready to go. So and when they do that, they'll they'll see the benefits of those efficient systems. So there, there's really multiple reasons for parties to look to standardize and, and automate in ways that they hadn't necessarily had the opportunity or the motivation to before. Well, Ian and Tara, thank you both for joining us here on FRT. It's a fantastic initiative, and I think a very exciting one that you've talked us through. And I'm going to just highlight a couple of things that I thought really resonated from our discussion. Uh, I really liked, Ian, the way you stepped us through those those key benefits, the ability of having the one data model that firstly enables and supports straight through processing, but also the portability of services and getting past some of the traditional reconciliation burdens, but also the point you made about the implementation of regulation and enabling a more consistent implementation of a new rule but also the way to test a new rule and where that can perhaps become a, a useful input for regulators, as well as the acceleration of innovation and that it delivers interoperability for free and the connection where that can support other initiatives like artificial intelligence. And I think bringing that together with that theme of the industry stepping up and providing a, an industry standard and one that's open source that others can plug into, I think is a, a fantastic initiative. And then I like the way that, Tara, you put that into the wider context of not only what we might see commonly in efforts to transform or digitize, where there are some of those human and cultural barriers or challenges that we need to push on, but also you know, that connection to what we're seeing specifically out of the COVID pandemic crisis, what this means in terms of the lessons learnt, I guess, of what works and what doesn't and what needs to be digitized or automated to enable better operations on an ongoing basis when we hopefully eventually get to move to a post-COVID world.
I think that really resonates with some of the broader themes we're seeing. So Ian and Tara, thank you again. It's been terrific talking with you and thank you for sharing this great innovation that you have in the common domain model. Thank you, Brad. Thank you, Brad. Really appreciate the opportunity. Looking ahead on FRT, we've just launched the second paper in the IEF's Digital Transformation Series with Deloitte, Realising the Digital Promise. We discussed the first paper, which looked at the top challenges in transformation back on episode 60. And next week, my colleagues Conan French and Dennis Ferenzi will join Deloitte's Punit Kakar to discuss the second report, and with that, some of the key enablers for overcoming those challenges. We're also going to speak with Torsten Klein-Buning, Chief Risk Officer of Dean Finance in Dubai. Torsten once led the IAF's credit modelling and RWA task force when he was at Standard Chartered, before he became the CRO at Harsbank in Mongolia, and now at Dean. And he's done some fascinating work there recently on the risks and ethics associated with how data is used, which of course was one of the top issues we took away from last year's Risk Minds conference. We'll look at some of those data issues also with Tanvi Singh, the Chief Analytics Officer at Credit Suisse, and we'll discuss innovation in Islamic finance with Basil Gamal, the Group Chief Executive Officer of the Qatar Islamic Bank. Please join us again then. I'm Brad Carr. Thanks for listening on FRT.